everybody, and welcome to the Banyan Books and Sound Podcast In Conversation. My name is Ross McKeechee. Recently, I had the pleasure of interviewing Lalita. Lalita is a lineage holder in the Western Baul tradition, a teacher in that tradition, appointed by her master, Kepali Lazowick, of whom she's been a disciple for almost 40 years, since 1981. She heads the Kripa Mandir Ashram in the interior of British Columbia. She's the author of three books on herbistry, as well as three wonderful books on sadhana or spiritual practice. The first one titled, Waking to Ordinary Life. The second book is titled, Cultivating Spiritual Maturity, The Courage to Practice. And the third is titled, Inspirations, from the subcontinent. She's also written the foreword to a book titled The Baul Tradition, Sahaja Vision East and West. This book mostly focuses on her master, Kepali Lazowick, and it's a great starting point for anybody who's curious about what is the Baul Tradition. You'll see throughout the interview that Lalita refers a number of times to my root teacher, Yogacharini Maitre. They've had a wonderful back and forth together and done a few different events and talks in collaboration. I've also had the great privilege and pleasure of sitting in person with Lolita and her Sangha. I really hope that you enjoy it and glean much insight and wisdom and inspiration on your journey. Okay, so what have you got? Let's, let's get to it. Let's get to it. I, I wanted to kind of grab people's attention right off the start who, who might, you know, kind of start watching this and, and might, you know, not finish watching it. So I wanted to distinguish by, by going into what you focus on in your work, which is kind of cutting through a lot of the delusions around spiritual life. And there's a quote, uh, one of the books, you mentioned a story about Lee Lozowick saying, giving instructions to one of his students who was going to make a website about him. And the only thing this student was allowed to put up, there was something along the lines of, and if you're looking for enlightenment, why don't you grow up? Can you, can you tell us about yeah. that and how that applies to your teachings? Yeah. So, so Lee was really emphatic about just basically the basic growing up the basic human maturity and i've always been really fierce about that because until we have a little more integration just in the psychological sense a little more integration of personality ego and all the rest we we are probably too vulnerable to practice this fiery path of Tantra that the Baul's practice. So you need some strength and stamina to, to practice in, a, in Guru Yoga. So our tradition is a Guru Yoga tradition. And there's a very big distinction between gurus and teachers. So in a Guru Yoga tradition, it's very fiery. And Lee knew this and he, you know, he welcomed anybody. We had people, we had 
people that were just flat out living on the street stumbled into a talk somebody gave about Lee and then they just caught fire with the idea they were going to go meet this guy. And, you know, this is when we all lived together in, in Prescott, Arizona. So, oh, we're going to go meet this guy. And uh, sometimes he would allow them to maybe visit him at the ashram one time. He often would tell people, uh, you can visit me once a month, you know, at a public meeting, he might say. And, and sometimes he would send the person, he would send the person a message with a long book list a long book list, read all of this first, and then you can come back to another study group or something. Yeah, but first read all of this. And it would be a daunting amount of stuff. So this was just his way of letting people participate while absorbing hopefully some of the good influence to help them grow up and become more self-responsible because he wanted people to be able to to handle just basics, you know, can you pay your rent? Can you buy food? Are, are you deeply in debt? So many, many students were deeply in debt. So it wasn't like he said, oh, you can't do this if you're in debt. But he was always working with people with their money and their debt. And he would get people involved in um, financial circumstances like, oh, a couple of times he would get people to start little businesses with, with him, multi-level marketing or something, and then they never lasted very long. But just to get people moving in the direction of trying to be more responsible, and then sometimes, you know, the businesses would collapse, and then the person would say, oh it collapsed i have no money i thought the guru would save me i thought the guru would help me get rich but even in business with him i lost all my money and he would you know he had this beautiful smile and kind of teasing grin that he would do and um and he would say yeah yeah next time you he'd hold up his hand next time you better think about who you go into business with he says, I'm the guru. I'm not your business partner. And sometimes people would come up and say, what kind of car should I buy? He said, oh, you know, you should get this, whatever. He named something that they could not afford or was totally unpractical. And they would say, you know, and what kind of car insurance, do, you know, should I get? And he would laugh. He'd say, you know, you think I'm a car salesman and now you think I'm an insurance salesman. He said, just grow up. And he would say that over and over, you know, just grow up. I am not your best friend. I am not your insurance salesman. I am not your financial advisor. He said, I might play those roles, you know, because we have kind of a friendship too. I might just say, he said, but you know, this is not cosmic advice here, you know, and he would, he would say in, in, on this path, you know, you need to grow up first and present yourself to the work with some um, with some resource of stamina or reliability. In other words, we start on the path wherever we start, but we need to basically grow up. And those are the first years, maybe. Maybe it's our whole life trying to grow up. 
and we're still maybe in that case with Lee, you know, we were still in the guru's company and we were trying to grow up and it was messy. I have to say, you know, cause I've been around his student for 40 years and in the very beginning, people were just out of college getting their first jobs and hustling up on each other's boyfriends and girlfriends and getting married and getting divorced and trying to practice, you know, and, there's a famous story with Lee about this growing up. There was a guy in the early years when they were living in New Jersey, and I didn't know him in New Jersey, but there was a man who was always mishandling his finances, but then he decided he was going to go to real estate school, and he was going to find his fortune and sell land and be a real estate tycoon. So he did this, and he said to Lee, Many times, people, I knew all of the, his friends who stayed around for the rest of the, Lee's life. They would, so this guy said to the community, apparently in public in Darshan, you know, when, when I hit it big, he says, you know, I'm donating it all to Lee because um, you've helped me so much and I never would have even had the stamina to go to school if you hadn't helped me and spiritual practice is the main thing and I'm going to donate it to the community you know for our work and he went on like this and he says so this guy um he he sold something and I don't remember the exact numbers but it was something like fifty thousand dollars it had a five and there was a big number for those days so he he sold this thing he got a huge commission Many, many, many tens of thousands of dollars he received. And he um, and everybody in the community was all excited. They told me they were all excited. You know, they they would be able to finish the mortgage on their ashram building and what exciting and they were all excited. And then he came to Lee one more time and he says, you know, Lee, I know I told you I was going to give you all this money, but who am I kidding? I don't think <laughs> he's, I'm not going to do this. And so he left. So then he left and we never saw him again. And Lee made a, made a teaching based on that. We have a practice now that's called the Who Am I Kidding practice. And we use it for all kinds of things. But we're, we use this phrase, you know, we might be thinking, you know, my husband really sucks. And then we might, if we're practicing this growing up, he would, you know, we would say, who am I kidding? And we might say, so-and-so, you know, they don't practice and they're making me unhappy. And then the other, the work I voice would be able to say, who am I kidding? So there's this whole practice now based around this phrase, who am I kidding, that came from this, this guy uh, getting lots of money, very excited, and then just telling Lee, you know, I promise this, but who am I kidding, you know? So all <laughs> over the years, all about growing up you know i wrote a song about this once um called babes in the nursery and it was all about all the shenanigans that lee put up with and all the things that we did as young students and that we were just babes in his nursery for a long time so it's not like we can't start on the path with no growing up but the basic conditions of of life need to be handled in order, especially on this kind of path, if it was more democratic kind of path, more eclectic, more, you know, do it yourself type of a thing, then there's a lot more wiggle room. So I often send people to other groups because they're, you know, they're, they're probably not yet 
suited, this kind of work might be too strong. In, in just in this sense, it's not the other schools aren't any good. When I've done talks in Vancouver, you know, I consider my tree an extraordinary resource and she's reliable and she's really, you know, she's really sharp and she has a, a mood that is, I'm told, you know, more patient than me. <laughs> and so, you know, I don't, I don't think that anyone needs to uh, get crushed. You know, so I often tell people, you know, right here in Vancouver, you have my tray, you know, something like that. So growing up is a kind of a basic. Yeah. You, you, so basically what you're talking about, if, correct me if I'm wrong, is there's a certain level of having your life together and stability in your emotional life and all those different aspects before you can really give yourself over to the path in a serious way and meet the requirements to really surrender to the guru, surrender to the divine. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how we can cultivate the capacity for surrender either to the guru or to the divine and what's really required for that to occur? Well, I, I believe there's a lot of misunderstanding about the word even surrender because in the Western psychology, any word like surrender or obedience, for example, or submission to the will of whatever, right away, um, the aspirant starts thinking, uh, what about me? What about my control? What do I get to say? How come it's not equal? You know, this is a partnership, me and the guru. You know, it's not a partnership until it is. So it would be, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a serious aspiration. It's a serious desire that comes from the heart i call it the passionate heart of the devotee the passionate heart of the practitioner that longing that many people naturally have calls them towards deepening their practice in some way and they don't know what way so they might decide oh i you know i want to study this kind of meditation practice or maybe i'm going to go to um ice skating lessons, you know, anything that's creative that might give them a little discipline and step into it slowly. And I think that the idea of um, how to develop that stamina is to, is to nurture, and I speak about this, I think, in one of my books, is to nurture what I call your work aim or your highest aspiration at the moment, to do things and make decisions based on your work aim. So I have a student whose work aim is a couple of words, uh, calm and happy. That's the whole work aim. So, it's, so if that person needs to make a decision, should I buy this car? Is it going to nurture me to be calm and happy? Oh, no, you know, I got to go in debt on my credit card and I, I can't handle it and I'm not making enough money. 
I really want that car, though. I'll feel, you know, I'll feel good with that car. I'll be sexier. I'll be faster and I'll get more attention. And so all the different eyes inside of us do this wild conversation. And maybe on a lucky day, we can, we can, our strongest, what I call your work eye, the eye that's really interested in that passionate heart of spiritual practice and that passion to actually be fully present and alert in the world and awake and to actually full, you know, to actually nourish this aim so we can have a trick like that. These are tricks. This does not get us enlightened. So you mentioned Lee saying, uh, if you're looking for enlightenment, go somewhere else because enlightenment is absolute vulnerability. You are available 100% 24-7. It's a life of service in the moment. You have no life of your own. Nobody would sign up for this. In my tradition, we have this phrase, annihilation in love. Soon as that word comes up, never mind surrender, but annihilation sounds like you need a nuclear bomb shelter or something, you know, <laughs> doesn't sound so appealing because the eye that hears those words is very frightened. So to prepare, we, you know, we move into something with some discipline. And if we're so lucky as to meet a meditation guide or a, a spiritual friend that could help us, you know, all of these are, are relationships that we might come upon along the path where there's, I'm a woman teacher, so I get often pigeonholed, you know, there's the divine mothers and the holy this is and that's, you know, the divine feminine, we get pigeonholed by somebody's projection of what they hope is going to save them. Uh, maybe you know my best someone we might we might find a spiritual friend or a helpful mentor that just gave us some cooking classes but the classes have changed our diet our diet has changed our chemistry that has changed our brain now our brain can be calmer now we can remember oh you know last year I thought I would take some yoga classes I how could I forget that and so even something like cooking classes or Lee used to have us study physical disciplines. And, he, and I still want my students to do that too. And he particularly liked disciplines that had a, a scheduled traditional aspect. So he would suggest ballet, for example, or he might suggest uh, very traditional martial arts. And this was all in the vein of learning just a hint of this flavor of surrender. Because if you want to learn anything, horseback riding, you have to surrender to the movement and the life of the body of the horse that you're riding. And, you know, there's this funny phrase in some traditions, it's called uh, I, I read it in, in Gurdjieff traditions. It's called riding the horse in the direction that it's going. <laughs> and this is what we have to develop before we can surrender anything. We've got to be riding the horse in the direction it's going. So if we're interested in the direction of transformation, some people like that word. That word sounds a little more friendly. Oh, yeah. Sign me up for some transformation. Sign me up for some enlightenment. Hooray, you know. 
but don't sign me up for hardships or suffering. Don't sign me up for like disappointment, God forbid, or diseases. Oh my God, worse than ever, you know? So surrender all of these words that are, that have a, a powerful archetypal meaning there. It's worthy of study. People collect a lot of information about these things, but when it comes down to knowledge of that, then I say, you, you know, you need to have some stamina in place so that you can live based on that, at least now and then, you know, maybe once a day, you have a lucky moment, all of your fears drop away and you're present, you know, that takes some stamina. And sometimes you have enough stamina to do that for several seconds or a day until you realize, well, that was pretty unpleasant, you know, to my ego. So there's a lot of wiggle room in how we approach these things, uh, enlightenment and surrender. And Lee, when I first met him, one of the very first things he, he said to me, and he said to everyone, you know, because he repeated it to me, was that everything is transitory, even enlightenment. And he really meant everything. Because in our tradition, enlightenment is not the, the goal. Enlightenment is a side effect of annihilation in love. Enlightenment is a side effect of maturing in spiritual practice. So it's never the goal. It's, it's absolutely a side effect. And most people don't like side effects. They want to have a goal. And if we reach the goal, then we get a prize, bells ring or something like on television, ding, 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 you know, you win a prize. And, you know, it never ends, Ross, never, it never ends. Practice never ends. As long as you can maintain a body and a mind in time and space, then your practice is in the body in time and space, and you have to deal with all of life circumstances, even if you're a hermit in a cave. You still have to poop and pee. You still have to find something to eat now and then, you know. So surrender is, okay, surrendering to the unknown, and it's really unknown. It's not that you could, you cannot catch it if you just have the right book you know surrendering to the unknown in a healthy way that that purity of that uh that alert awakening of the of the full presence of being that's possible for a human being i call it presence of being when you have all of your parts going in the same direction and fully aware of the risk that you're taking and happily willing to take the risk then these words don't scare you so more you can look at them and and they they fulfill themselves so you don't get surrender you become it hmm. thank you what, what's the danger um, in, in the practitioner fixating on a goal like enlightenment and trying to skip steps, very, very necessary steps in their process? I know I've, anybody who's observed their mind will see that tendency to want to be ahead of where we are. 
how do we work with that? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm kind of a little bit impatient. You know, my background is I, I've been a healer since I've been a child. And so I, you know, I would see a lot of broken people or a lot of sick people. And then when I was a child, I only fixed animals. And so they didn't have a mind to complicate things. They got fixed and they stayed fixed. But people would get fixed and be broken again, get fixed and be broken because we have a big interest in, you know, being broken and take, being taken care of. So this idea of, so just repeat your question again. Yeah, how do we, how do we work with the tendency to want to get ahead of ourselves by fixating on a goal, a grandiose goal like enlightenment? So with these, you know, the sick people, for example, always wanted to, their, their big goal was to, to be well, but they didn't want to do any of the steps like stop drinking a quart of whiskey every day, <laughs> you know, or a step of, can you, uh, you know, can you stop beating your dogs? Can you, and sometimes I would tell people, you know, you need some psychological counseling because there's nothing really wrong. And they say, oh, no, 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 I need surgery for sure. You know, they want to skip over any self-responsibility or any effort. I mean, effort, you need some stamina and you need some strength to have any effort, even if it's just to cook your dinner or something. So this idea of, you know, how are we going to... Um, get through these obstacles and what steps can we can we take so that we're not skipping skipping over stuff i've often been accused of expecting too much so that's partly why you know i don't our sangha is very small because i set the bar too high i think i i expect a lot you know i expect a lot and i often say to people i might say to them uh and i have said to people you know, do not get married. That's a terrible idea. Don't do it. And then the next thing I know, they call me up and say, oh, I couldn't help it. You know, I had to get married. And now they're on the 20-year plan of suffering and stupid stuff. And they didn't, in my view, you know, I was trying to help them avoid those steps. This was a long time ago. I haven't done that recently. Thank God. If there's a God, thank him for her. So, but this idea, of, this idea of skipping steps, you know, I'm sure any teacher, never mind a guru, but, you know, any teacher of anything would hold the best for their students and want them to excel, you know, excel wonderfully and suffer as little as possible you know and so with the person probably and then as we as we grow up we realize that suffering the definitions of suffering changes over time so now we don't feel so compelled to have to skip that step because suffering isn't scaring us anymore so we don't have to skip it but in the you know and then maybe we don't have to skip over handling our emotions maybe we don't have to skip over um, blaming everybody for our unhappiness but in order to actually 
mature in that way, we've got to do our homework. We've got, and this is why every tradition has practices, you know, have things that you're supposed to be attempting every day to do internal and external training. And it's, it's, it's indispensable. There's plenty of stories in guru yoga traditions where certain devotees, all they have to do is go and live with the, the rowdy, you know, yeah, the rowdy guru and put up with everything and, and just go along and be the companion of a hard to get along with person and stick with it. And that's enough. You know, this, this many traditions like that I've read about in India, for example, and in other countries, but India as an example, um, that there is this rare person who can, by their life of service to the Satguru, that's enough. And maybe they, you know, they have bad habits on the side and they never handle their emotions and they never um, grow up in the basic ways, but they're one-pointed. They're just one-pointed in their longing to be fully awake. And for the rare person that can work, but for most of all the rest of us, you know, we need to actually take the steps piece by piece and whatever, you know, whatever the teacher's prescribing. So this, this is a beginning step of surrender where we take the advice of the teacher and we put it into practice without saying, well, is it the best advice ever? You know, is this what I want to do? Of course, you have to have discrimination. But if you're at the point, if a person is at the point where they're going to actually engage a relationship with a mentor or a teacher or a guru, then the, the first whiff of surrender is, okay, I'm going to have to just be willing to follow some instructions, you know, even if it's not my preferred plan. And this is how we, you know, we take steps to do the degree that we can handle the risk. How are we going to handle risk? We've got to have some strength and stamina in place so that we know that, okay, I'm going to take a risk here and just wash cars for six months, like my guru says, even though I won't make any money and I don't get to have any cars either and all, you know, I'm going to just do the thing. And then we get to see the results. Can we risk that? Or are we a person who says, you know, I can't handle car washing for six months. You know, that's really beneath me. I wanted to be a movie star or a rock star or something. Car washing, I don't think so. I can't, you know, I'm going to, oh, I guess I'm going to find a guru who makes, who tells me that I, I need to go be a rock star right away. So this is what we call the shopping mall and the shopping mall of spiritual stuff. And it's endless, it's endless, but the shopping mall is where we start, you know, and can we develop the strength and stamina? So in our tradition, we have what we call foundational practices. And these, I always want people to try to have these in place while they're maturing in our sangha and the the basic conditions for practice are are very common everywhere you know right diet 
study that we prescribe. So there's diet and study and exercise and meditation, uh, right sexuality. And I find right sexuality is one of the biggest, biggest deal breakers for just about more than 60% of people because of internet sex addictions, especially amongst the men, but some women. So right sexuality is probably the place where Westerners have the hardest time growing up. And never mind, surrender is like a complete side issue. Enlightenment is a complete side issue. So. Yeah, uh, this is a really good topic. I mean, we live in such a over-sexualized pornographic culture right now. And as, as a practitioner goes through the layers, they're going to see so many warped things about their relationship to sexuality. What I've, I've heard the term, uh, I think it was Lee Lozowick used the term organic sexuality, or is that true? Just how do we come to a natural, easeful resting place around our own sexuality and engaging in sex? Yeah. Well, we have uh, a, con a phrase that, a teaching phrase is called organic innocence. Mm. And also Lee has talked about natural sexuality. In the West, who knows how you would even define these kind of things. Every country has a different thing that they're gonna, con you know, that we're gonna consider the cultural quote norm. So I'm not speaking about cultural norms. When I'm teaching my students, I am teaching them what it is that's possible for a human being in relationship to the divine or as the divine. With, you know, if you're going to take it from dual or non-dual, you know, let's don't get too cosmic here. But let's just say that this idea of what's going to be um, natural, what I'm interested in is the sadhana, the spiritual practice that awakens in and through the body. In other words, the whole person gets brought along. So we're not just a meditation school. We're not just a yoga school. We're not just a, a piece of the pie. All schools say, well, if you just did our particular thing, all the rest will take care of itself. But on the Baul path is very much all aspects of life are brought along all at the same time. So given that and relating that back to sexuality, like I'm, I'm living in British Columbia where every, you know, every kind of uh, THC, every kind of hot marijuana product is available easily. And I have many students who, when they come to me and I'm questioning them about, you know, where do you think you're starting from? And they fail to mention as unusual that they drug themselves into sex and they drug themselves out of sex because it's just normal. You know, they, they have some THC they showed me in these little bottles and you give it to each other before you have sex to quote, give them a heightened experience, unquote. And then in order to come out of it and, and be, you know, no side effects, they think, um, so they can handle their kids or whatever, you know, they have a different thing that smooths out the first thing. And, you know, this is not new in history. This is how human beings live. We drug ourselves awake, 
you know, my drug, I have a cup of green tea in the morning. You know, not every morning, but you know, that could, even that considered, we, we all do things in order to make our path smooth and even in the most conventional sense. So with sex, it's the same way. We're feeling unloved, we're feeling alone, we're feeling not quite okay. And we, we still believe that if we just find the right magic bullet person to give us happiness, then it's, we're all, we're all going to be happy. So where could you even start with that? So one of the things, one of the things that I insist on, and it's not an easy thing. So it takes time for some people, but before I would, you know, some teachers are like this. So I'm not alone in this, you know, before I would teach any deeper practices or more difficult things to do. The first thing I ask, of people is to come to become unbuffered in other words you need to be fully present in reality just as it is as best you can not i know it isn't perfect without buffers without you know without all the different drugs all day without the internet all day sexual pornography all of these buffers that we have in place to buffer us against reality just as it is so this is part of how you know if you're gonna say what's a how-to about this well the very first thing is to allow the body to relax into what it's got you know what is it actually starting from and i often sometimes i'd come across really sick people and since I come and go from India and with groups of friends, sometimes we come back from India and people might have, they would have fungus infections, viral infections, parasites and bacterial infections all mixed together. You couldn't even sort out what, what went wrong. And this has deranged their mind. And then they've started behaving aggressively. And then they get quote, they go to a doctor and they get diagnosed with one thing. Oh, you know, you've got this disease or that disease and then you you need this radical treatment or that radical treatment and then they would come back to me because sometimes they were sangha members and they'd say lali you know the doctor said i have this horrible disease and i i better have this surgery or this radiation and you know what do you think and you know i always have told people the first thing is to do some you know and i give them some instructions you need to do some fasting and cleansing that you can handle do some clean do some cleanup clean up the mess as best you know get rid of some of these infections and see what you've got left and then that's the thing that you need extra help with and it's the same with sexuality you need to clean up the mess somehow and even taking a first step of cleaning up the mess is very threatening to a lot of people I had some, this friend of this friend told me this decades ago, this man said to me, um, he would rather have the orgasm that he knows he's going to get for sure, uh, <laughs> instead of cleaning up his act and possibly not having any for a while. You know, that was his idea of the choice that he was going to have to make. And that I've discovered is not an unusual choice. We, It's like that old cliche, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, you know? So it's like <laughs> an orgasm right now is, you know, is better than, you know, 
natural sexuality later, which may not include orgasms constantly, which is my current comfort zone. So now we're in a conversation about our comfort zone. You know, really, uh, do we even have the strength to step out of our comfort zone? So once again, we're back to the basics stepping stones of growing up. We need to be able to step out of our, you know, our false belief in our comfort zone. Because we believe in this. We believe our comfort zone means we will never die. And death is the booby prize. And that only happens if you step out of your comfort zone because death cannot be comfortable. You know, it's all tangled up in fear of death is really at the bottom of a lot of obstacles for practitioners. It's really a core thing, and it's very core in the practice of right sexuality. You know, so, you know, I, I, I don't think there's a magic bullet for it, but the first step is, are we willing to step back and do nothing about it for a while? Because I, I don't think that we need to make a big fight against any of these things. You know, energy literally follows attention. So if we put attention on, I've got to hold back and never have an orgasm again and don't have any more sex and give up on all men or women, that's a lot of attention going in and it's very inflaming. So now we've got an inflamed sexual meme going on in addition to whatever else we had going on. This is how, you know, our, our, uh, we call it the denying force, or some people call it ego. Ego gets blamed for everything. You know, we need a strong, effective ego to function in and through the body. So it's a, you know, there's a lot to learn about how we're defining these things in order to maintain a false comfort zone. And most people, I have to say, most people, most human beings live a life of mediocrity and then they die. And I'm not saying it's us against them. I'm saying all of us are in this. And we never get the chance to open the extraordinary doorways of a human being. The full resources of a human being almost, I mean, probably half the, at least 50% are not open. Probably the statistic is worse. But to open these resources and to use what's possible for a human being is an extraordinary insight to have. And until we suspect, oh, there's, there's a lot more to this human being business than I thought, until we suspect that, our, we, we settle for mediocrity. And that might be our whole life. And I'm not saying that everybody's bad if they settle for mediocrity. I'm, that's the part of the path they're on. It's not a bad part of the path. It's one of these necessary steps that you mentioned earlier. But if there is a moment of wakeful insight and we suspect that there's way more possible for a human being, you know, then we, you know, we start, we start thinking, hmm, geez, you know, I always suspected that being, you know, on internet pornography, you know, for several hours a day probably wasn't healthy. 
but it makes me happy it makes me comfortable and my lifestyle people have said these things to me and it's, it's my lifestyle so you know can we assess our lifestyle and then can we you know i i call it put it down and walk away and i learned about this from lee as well you know can we put this thing can we happily put these things down and walk away not a big fight against ourselves how are we going to happily put down a piece of our comfort zone well we build some strength and stamina we build that inner work eye we work with our aim we start with basic steps i think i wrote a whole chapter just about the aim getting an aim and and you know working with an aim because you've got to start with something that you compare other stuff to and i don't recommend this as a lifelong habit but in the beginning we've got to have something that we're comparing to so we develop a we work aim and we compare okay internet pornography is not really producing calm and happy i thought it was producing calm and happy but now i see that it's not producing calm and happy because I need to repeat the activity many times a day. So calm and happy is not steady here. And it's not actually even true, probably. And we start being suspicious of our motivations. And that stage can last for years. And the most common question I get in that stage is, if I can't trust myself, what can I trust? You know, that's a real question. You know, you can't trust yourself because I'm I'm busy pointing out all the stupid shit that someone might believe, and then they're, you know, they might be feeling, oh, mm, I can't believe in anything. Not even pornography happiness has been thrown out the window. You know, that's so good. And then I get this question, you know, what? Well, what can I rely on? You know, if I was being brutally honest, which I'm, as I get older, I'm 71 now, I'm, I'm less brutally honest, but I also send people to my students. I say, you know, I think you should go and ask them because if they're asking me and they're saying, so what can I trust? I would say nothing. You, in your condition, you have nothing to rely on. I might, you know, I might say that. That's, I don't think that's a very kind thing. So I might send them to somebody else that would be a little more reasonable. Sometimes I'm, I'm a lot more reasonable, but you know, sometimes it's frustrating to have the same disease. Person gets fixed up, they go away, they can't stand to feel that good. I've heard they literally tell, oh, Lalit, I can't stand to feel that good. I have to be responsible for my own happiness. Oh, terrible news, you know. <laughs> and I love this Buddhist phrase, creating causes and conditions for happiness for oneself and others. I love that phrase. I think that would be, you know, that'd be a great starting point to he work a with lot sexuality. of these right you use a lot of these uh wonderful phrases and i know some of them are ones that you have come up with and some you take from other traditions um mm -hmm. such as creating causes and conditions for happiness uh some of the other ones like to be that which nothing can take root in 
or live based on what you know how do you how do you work with these what is the what is the aim in the work with these phrases and how they stick and kind of um end up blossoming in the practitioner well sometimes i feel i have to use the shotgun effect so i don't know if you know much about guns my family grew up hunters and i grew up with guns so a shotgun is a big fat bullet with lots of tiny pellets and when you shoot it into a flock of birds the pellets spread out and shoot any old thing that's flying by and you hope you're going to hit something if you're a bird hunter for example so it's called the shotgun method and so in spiritual practice the shotgun method is kind of you you know you you throw in a lot of information so that's why i want my students to study because you never know which phrase is going to light up just in the most this is really literal ross the most simple way which phrase is going to trigger the brain chemistry that's going to allow you to hold a thought and some of us grew up with all different triggers from our just our culture and sometimes particular phrase will suddenly light up our brain in a totally unexpected way so there's that behind some of these phrases but i always like you know i get accused of take you know being too silly sometimes i'm always making up cartoon like faulty analogies i'm told and um i make up phrases to kind of encapsulate things so i made up living based on what you know i think um what's wanted and needed in the moment and resting in reality just as it is was arnaudet jardin and and what's wanted and needed in the moment was lee lazawick and so the Baal tradition is famous for hashing all these things together uh, in a healthy way, in a, in a reliable way. Usually the teacher is the one who's putting, who's putting the puzzle together and then offering it to the students. And yes, you're right. It kind of hits you from all angles. You know, there's the feeling center, the moving center, the thinking center as, as Gurdjieff, that's his language. And so, you know, it, it does light up and you never know when the right piece of information is going to light up something in your, in somebody's brain when they're having a lucky day. And if, if and it's a pretty big, if, but if we keep ourselves in a condition of ready vulnerability for the nurturing of our aim, not as a victim to life, but in nurturing our aim, if we can, to the degree that we can maintain that um, valuable vulnerability, then when these, you know, when these teachings fly past in a casual conversation with our teacher, I bet this happens with my tray. You know, you're t you think you're washing the dishes, and then something <laughs> zings by. But you have to be able to. It has to stick. And mostly, we are sticky to unhealthy thought forms and unhealthy teachings of our friends and of society mostly we're sticky to that so we have to create ourselves as practitioners that become sticky like flypaper to the teachings our the spiritual teachings of our teachers 
and we become like Teflon to the unhealthy stuff. So it'll just slide right away. So this is kind of my approach a little bit. You also have the, uh, your three rules. Can you tell our audience a little bit about <laughs> rules? I, I love those three rules. I, I, yeah, I have a list of rules. You know, I mentioned earlier that there's all of these different relationships to our, our teachers. We can relate to the teacher uh, if it's a, you know, as a spiritual friend or as a divine mother or as a mentor or as a teacher or as a guru. Some of that's mixed together. Some of it's not. Gurus are usually always teachers. Teachers are not necessarily gurus. So we have all these categories. And I used to call myself anti-Lalita because my students, especially when, when they were much younger and starting off, they treated me more like a friendly auntie. So I call them anti-Lalita's rules. Mm-hmm. And so anti-Lalita's rule number one was things are not what they seem. And Auntie Lalit's rule number two was pay more than you think you owe. I might have these in a different order. Auntie Lalit's rule number three was don't buy it unless it's 100%. And since then, you know, I've added a couple more, but those three are, you know, the top of the list. And just, just right now, I have a couple of students who are interested in putting together a book of these sayings and phrases from our particular school, including anti Lalit's rules. So what we call, you know, I called myself anti as kind of a teasing clue to my students, pointing out, you know, the relationship that we currently had. We're having, you know, we're, we're having a very mild kind of relationship and not everyone is going to be practicing guru yoga so we might be in a guru yoga tradition but we might not yet be practicing guru yoga itself we might be practicing at the level of spiritual friend or anti-lalit or something and it's up to the teachers to to um, make boundaries about these things you know healthy teachers that aren't just gathering the masses to be the boss of them but healthy teachers who are actually making healthy boundaries. And so that's why I called it anti-Lalit's rules, but we still use them, you know, nevertheless. <laughs> um, I'd like to shift gears a little bit, if I may, and ask you about your relationship to your guru or master, Lee Lazowick. And how that played out in your life and how it still plays out. How, how did your relationship with Lee evolve over the years and how, how has it evolved since he left the body and to present day? Well, with, with Lee, you know, I had a, I had a strong intuition of him before I met him. So I had no problem with gurus, guru yogas, or anything. When I met him, you know, I, and, and this isn't true, you know, I learned later, you know, it's, it's not the most common thing, but I was fully prepared and I was expecting, 
I wasn't necessarily expecting a curly-haired, blue-eyed Jewish patriarch from New Jersey. That was not what I was expecting. But I, I was um, expecting and recognized the mood and the presence and the influence that he carried. So, you know, I aspired to practicing Guru Yoga. By the time I met Lee, I had already had plenty of mentors and teachers and I, you know, those were hippie, you know, I, I was a hippie back in the 60s or whatever and um, community networking and I'd been a healer, I had been a midwife, I had done all kind of things so that by the time I met him, I had a lot of strength and stamina in place by just life experience for one thing and this is kind of how it started with him. And I was very one-pointed about it. I was not shopping around. I was not thinking of, oh, maybe I'd like somebody else better. I wasn't thinking, well, I think I'll go try this school or that school. It was very one-pointed. And years later, when our larger school, home community, um, became associated with the Ba'uls of Bengal, I learned about this beautiful Baul teaching is called one string sadhana. So in the Baul sadhana, they carry a one string instrument with them to sing their teaching songs and prayers. And it's called an ektara and has one string. So for Baul's, they, they might say that they are practicing a one string sadhana, one eye, one root guru, one pointed aspiration to um, be awake and of service and union with God or whatever their, you know, whatever their particular aspiration is at the moment, for example. It might be enlightenment. I don't know what it could be anything. But one string sadhana is one root guru, one path, one dharma, one focus, one service. And there's a beautiful Hindu deity called Ekajati. And Eka, Ek means one. Jati is a, is a piece of hair that, it's a dreadlock. So Ekajati means one jati, one you know, piece of dreadlock sticking up. And so this beautiful, it's very stylized, but it's Ekajati. She has one jati sticking up. She has one eye in the middle of her forehead. She has one breast in the middle. She has one, you know, of everything. And um, it's depicting this one pointed drive to be fully alive, fully present, no buffers, in reality, just as it is, fearless, fierce, um, passionate. And, you know, that is, that one string sadhana was there with my guru. And that's, you know, I had many mentors before I met Lee. I was actually uh, guided towards meeting Lee because my, my, beloved first spiritual mentor, Mother Mira of the Sri Aurobindo Ashram. She was my spiritual guide for many, many years. And she always said to me, sometimes in dreams and sometimes all different ways, she'd say, you know, to practice this fiery path, you're going to need serious help. And 
So, you know, I'm sending serious help your way. And then when Lee Lothwick showed up, only reason I went to meet him because she was encouraging me. And at that point, I don't think she was in her body anymore. But I had such a strong internal relationship to her that she was teaching me literally all, all kind of things. And she said, oh, well, you meet this guy. And when I met Lee, he, I, pick, I helped to pick him up at the airport. And I rode in a van with him and a bunch of his students from Phoenix, Arizona, up to Prescott, Arizona, where he was living. And nobody wanted to sit next to him in the van. Nobody wanted to be seen taking the privilege of sitting next to him. And I was a new person. I had never met him before. So I stayed back in this little group of people thinking, okay, I'll probably end up sitting in the back of the van because of course, everybody's going to want to sit in the front and I'm the new person. I'll probably end up in the back. I'll probably throw up all over the seat and get car sick, but that's what's going to happen. So that's what I was expecting. And everybody packed in the van and the only seat left was the seat next to Lee. So I was surprised and I was a little nervous and I get in and I sit next to him and the whole ride up to Prescott, he was teasing me about all kinds of things like how come do you how why do you have time to hitchhike around the country and why are you so uh, such a free spirit and don't you have any responsibilities and how do you pay your rent and he would tease me like this and finally i started to laugh and i said i work really hard i said you know i'm a teacher and a healer and i have this started this healing center i'm still working i have a full summer schedule of healing classes that i'm teaching with my you know, with my friends, I said, we have a lot of responsibilities. And I said, right now, uh, I took a couple weeks off and I'm hitchhiking around and my friends brought me to pick you up at the airport, you know, and I was laughing and he, he started to laugh too. And he, and he said something like, oh, I get it. I get it. And he was laughing at his own, you know, silly teeth. And so our relationship started like this. And it was always very playful and was always very, um, was very intimate, not sexually intimate, but we, it was very emotionally and psychically connected right from the beginning. And we had this playful, laughing tenderness that we always had. And that characterized right from the beginning, you know, my attention was riveted on him. And at the same time, I thought, you know, I, I started thinking things like, oh, he's kind of, he's kind of silly. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't look like the gurus with, you know, he doesn't have white clothes or a turban or anything. And he's got kids and he's got a wife. And, um, and then, so that night I had this, one of these vivid experiences with mother Mira, cause she would often just show up and I'd been very psychic since I was a child. So I was used to, you know, nowadays, if I say these things, I don't say these things a lot, but here I am putting it on this video. But in any case, you know, it could be true or not true what I'm saying. I could just be making all this shit up. But I am, you know, my experience was that she said to me, you know, she said, no matter how silly he looks, no matter what, he's the real deal. And you should, you should do whatever it is that he's doing. You should do that. So I just threw myself in and it was quite, you know, 
the whole story of that, I'm just remembering this, the whole much fuller story of that. There's this book called Woman Awake. And any women who are listening to this who really are wanting to be inspired by great women teachers, there's this book called Woman Awake by Regina Ryan. And this fuller story of my meeting with Lee and what I thought of him is all in there, but there's some really great women teachers in that book, Woman Awake, that you know, that would be valuable maybe to somebody who's, who's might listen to this. So anyway, that was my one string sadhana kind of encapsulates. And even now, you know, I have no other path. I have no other instrument. I have a one string sadhana. And Lee used to say regarding his guru, he said all of his eggs were in the same basket. That's how Lee used to describe this. He used to, regarding Yogi Ramsarakumar, he'd say, all of my eggs are in the are in one basket. Do or die, up or down, all of my eggs are in one basket, and that's it for me. That's how he described his sadhana with Yogi Ramsarakumar. And Yogi Ramsarakumar had a phrase that had that same feeling about his main guru. Swami Paparamdas. So it seems to be a theme even before we had this strong association with the Bahuls. How does that how does that relationship to the guru and the physical body translate into our single pointed awareness or single pointed devotion to the beloved or the divine? I think it, it plays out differently, of course, for different individuals. And some, in some cases, especially if you're in a guru yoga tradition, some people identify with their guru in such a way that the guru is the embodiment of the divine in the impersonal sense and sometimes even in the personal sense. So Lee Lazowick, regarding his own guru, Yogi Ramsarakumar, Lee used to say, and he wrote about this extensively, that Yogi Ramsarakumar was the living embodiment of his personal beloved and also the impersonal beloved, the impersonal absolute. So both. So for him, everything was Yogi Ramsarakumar, the personal, in-your-face, beloved, physically present, and also the impersonal, because Yogi often would say that he was not just that body, and Lee would say this too. So there's that extreme, and, and uh, I believe, and my train knows, I'm, I mangle these words all the time, so I'm embarrassed to say if you can, my train you might hear this, but there is this teaching in Hindu theology called the Ishta Devata. It means your personal beloved. And many people choose one. They might choose Hanuman or the Durga or something to be their Ishta Devata, and then they would have a statue or a painting. They would have some image maybe, or they might worship the divine with no form, but in their heart's desire, they would have an Ishta Devata. And some people would identify with their living guru as their personal Ishta Devata, their personal living beloved. Others might come along, and even with Lee, people would come, and they, you know, they might really like Lee, they might love Lee, they might enjoy his company, but they were not 
they were just not full of a desire they, to have him identify. I mean, they, it just didn't happen that they were identifying him and he never suggested such a thing, but you know, maybe someone came along and they were thinking, I don't know about this personal God business, but just in general, sort of in the back of my mind, there's a general sort of design, divine feelings, kind of. <laughs> so that's good enough. And, you know, it's rare that somebody wants to have a living guru in your face. It's very much more convenient to have a dead guru or an imaginary guru because you can put, you know, you can imagine whatever you want. Oh, my guru in my heart told me I needed to live in a castle, you know, with gold coins in my lap because that would suit me the best, you know, whatever, you know, we can make up stuff. So if we have a living guru in our face or a teacher or a mentor or something, it's going to a corrective mechanism. And this is something I often tell people when they say, how can I choose a teacher? Well, you don't get to just go around and pick one and then you automatically have a teacher-student relationship. You know, that builds over, over time. And you can um, find sometimes that this arises in an individual where they recognize something personal in their teacher or their mentor. So, you know, Lee would sometimes acknowledge that with people and usually it was obvious you know even if people were coming along and claiming oh Lee's my guru you know sometimes he would just kind of chuckle you know because we don't get to just say oh you know I have a guru isn't that nice or I have a teacher isn't that nice we can say those words but to live that you know that's Nobody really likes the idea that there's a guru in your face telling you what to do. And Lee used to say to all of us, people would come to him with their dreams and say, in my dream, you told me I should marry so-and-so. And Lee would roll his eyes and he'd say, that's a terrible idea. And they'd say, but you told me in my dream. And so he would, you know, he was always saying, you know, unless I'm in your face telling you that, he said, you know, it doesn't count. You know, it doesn't count your dreams, you know, that dreams might be a good guide, but if it's something important, like go marry so-and-so, he says, you better, he says, I want you to check with me in person. You know, don't just think that I'm popping up in your dream, you know, fulfilling your neurotic desires or something. So there's quite a, there's quite a broad spectrum of this, of this question that you pointing to this topic of this relationship um you already answered one of my questions that i wanted to ask just now which was how how can these dreams and visions uh serve us in our path and how can they become delusions or things that we're grasping at is i don't know if there's anything more you want to say about that yeah you know one of the most important points is accountability so when people come to me and say, how am I going to find a guru and what should I look for? You know, I said, look for somebody who is accountable. In other words, a living tradition where there might be uh, gurus who are accountable 
accountable to other gurus? And if the gurus are not in their body anymore, is your teacher accountable to a peer group, to anyone, anything? Accountability is really an important, it's an important investigation, this accountability. So, you know, this idea of how are we going to um, interpret our dreams and our visions and, you know, in our psychic experiences. And some people have none and some people have them constantly. And as a healer, I can tell you that, and as a scientist, um, not me, but, you know, I have plenty of friends who are scientists and it's very well proven that you can get a human brain to believe anything by tweaking the chemistry. You can get it to be afraid. You can get it to feel horny. You can get it to feel celibate. You can get it to you, your brain to be wanting something or not wanting something. So when we have a deepening sadhana and we have experiences and we're feeling that these are guidances, do we have, un, now this is some, this is a hard sell for, for British Columbia, but do we have unbuffered, steady, reliable, sharp practitioner friends that we are accountable to? So in other words, if we have some visions and then we go to our friend who's drugged up all the time and say, what do you think I've had these visions? They're going to say, oh yeah, what a great idea. Those <laughs> visions, yeah, have you know, and if you go to your teacher, it might be like Lee saying, that's the worst idea. Or if you go to your significant friends that you can, that you have found over time to be reliable and your most reliable friends are not necessarily going to be perfect examples of practice but they are reliable because they you know they're they are sincere and they know you and they want the best for you and they're going to help you practice they're not going to just say oh yeah believe anything they're going to say you're going to help you okay how would you practice with this well you would rest in the mood if the vision is helping you to nourish a worthy aim it's got some value. It doesn't have to be the best, perfectest vision that's going to last your whole life. It doesn't have to be the smartest voice. And you have to remember, this is really important, that I learned as a healer from the earliest years, just because something is invisible, uh, just because something has appeared to your mind or dream, does not make it wise and does not make it smart and does not make it reliable and does not mean it has your best interests at heart. So many people believe that the invisible, the magical or the unseen automatically has wisdom or automatically is reliable or even spiritually, uh, spiritual integrity. That's, you know, that's really a big mistake that people make is to assume that just because something's invisible or less tangible, that it's smarter than us or wiser than us. That's an absolute error in thinking. So you have to always be alert and accountable. And there's so many do-it-yourselfers. One time, years ago, I was in Vancouver and somebody told me that there was a group called DIY Yoga. It was do-it-yourself yoga, and they said that 
the aim of the group was that everybody would practice individually whatever they could think up and they would support each other in that and some of the some of the stuff they came up with was really harmful they were really harming themselves it was like an alcoholic doing its own sadhana and deciding yeah i should stay in a drunken stupor as much as possible you know that's my best idea and then everybody goes well that's your path you know we all want to support your path so you know there's no accountability and i've had people say to me well i'm accountable to the guru within that's a really big meme i'm just going to be accountable to the guru within well that teaching in fact is a very wise and and archetypal teaching but it supposes that you have a guru within and that is simply not true that is simply not true that you automatically have a guru within that you can just listen to that's not what's happening we're not listening to the guru in our heart we're not listening some people don't say the guru within they'll say i'm listening to my heart they are not listening to their heart it's the neurotic mind listening to itself and calling it the heart or you know so there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong and when you're when you're on a tantric path it's very fiery and illusions get you know in the fire frequently and we have to step back from that flame and say okay whoa i got to digest this for a while and that's why choosing our path might change over time we might start off in a yoga class and as you know you've had a lot of experience somebody would come to you or my tray for yoga teaching or spiritual teaching and you'll you know you'll say okay just do these simple practices cuz you know right off that they're not very mentally stable yet and you're not going to expect a lot of them you're going to just expect do these simple steps and you know this is because you know you're accountable to my tray she's watching you she's a, she's accountable to her lineage and her guru so that's accountability it's indispensable if you're going to if you're really going to expect to step into the unknown you need help there's just no way around it so if you're a do it yourself or and you're helping your own self with your own neurotic mind and you're calling it the guru within and you're not accountable to anything you know you might i i'm not saying there's no value in that because everything anything that helps us grow up even if we crash badly and it takes lifetimes to straighten out the mess that's that's growing up you know i want to be mindful of your time um and we've been an hour and almost an hour and a half um i have two more questions if i may one is about uh what your what your messaging is to your students right now with with the covid-19 situation and so maybe i'll just ask that first and then i have one closing question if that's okay if you have time i keep nagging my students and telling them to 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 cancel their desire to go back to normal that this is such an opportunity to put it down and walk away so i'm telling you know i'm telling them lose your interest in going back to anything go straight ahead nurse your aim 
see what the work is bringing to you and embrace change and to be careful that you don't get swept up in the neurosis of this newest disease. There's plenty of other horrible diseases besides COVID that's everywhere waiting to be caught. Internet pornography, I consider that a worse disease than COVID, <laughs> even though it doesn't kill you. It kills the mind and it kills the spiritual aspirations, at least with COVID, if you're going to die from it, just be as you're dying, you probably get a little insight, you know, like, oh, I wasted my life. But, you know, <laughs> if you die, if you die of, you know, if you don't die, if you're just like, you know, you can just spend your whole life on the internet. You don't even know you're dying horribly. It's a slow eat your brain disease. Ew. <laughs> So don't go back to normal. You know, embrace this fabulous gift. It just so happens we call it COVID-19 right now, but this is what it took to scare people enough. So for my students, this is what it's taken. It's taken something like this to scare them enough so that they step back from all the contaminations that they eat constantly in their mind and in their with their eyes and their ears and their heart, you know. This is what it took. It's forced them to clean up lots of stuff. So who would want to go back to normal, whatever they thought normal. So that's my message about that. That's great. Thank you. My, my final question is, um, it's around legacy. And I know that I've been told that you, uh, you learned at some point in your life, I don't know if it was through Mother Mirror, you had some insight that the greater part of your teaching work would be later in your life. And I'm curious to know in what direction you feel you're moving with your teaching work and what is the legacy that you're aiming to leave for your Sangha? Well, I don't know. I don't know what anyone else would say observing my teaching work, but I feel like it, it you know, it, there's no end to the deepening of my relationship to my guru. And more and more, I am, I don't even know if this is correct English, but more often am I less compromising, less willing to compromise. So for the first 30 years, you know, I've only, I, I started officially having my own students in 1998. And prior to that, I did a lot, a lot of teaching for, for Leaf of his students all over the world. And then in 1998, I started having my, the responsibility for my own students in this Guru Yoga. So this was, You know, the, the way I see it evolving is that I have followed my guru's advice and his, some of his close friends gave me the same advice to really keep it as small as possible, as long as possible. Because in hindsight, some of these great teachers, and I think it was their dharma to have large groups, but they have said to me that it was for a handful of people. All of those large amounts of people was really, all that work was just to find a few that were able and willing to actually do the work and remain in place. So as my teaching evolves the last, the last couple of years, probably the last 
more than a couple of years. Starting in about 2015, I rarely leave my ashram. So my, my past would involve more travel. And now I would say that it's evolved in, you know, I rarely leave my ashram. If somebody wants to know about me or see me or anything, you know, they've got to go through some steps. So we've got a couple of study groups. We do not have a public ashram that's just open to transient people coming through. It's for practitioners. We have winter retreats. We have, you know, and we do have now and then public offerings with yoga camps or something like that. But I'm, um, I would say that I'm less willing to compromise. And the legacy that I would hope to leave to anyone who touches upon this lineage, and certainly there are other living lineages besides this one, um, is that is to be sanctuary, to hold sanctuary, to build sanctuary. And what that means for me is to maintain an environment with as few obstacles as possible and be willing to maintain it and rest in it and be it. And that sets the bar really high. Who else in the world wants to come and spend their life? You know, it's beautiful here. We live in this beautiful pristine garlic farm with you know we have 126 acres we've got the best water around we've got flowing streams we've got such beauty we're surrounded by and when people come here it's very hard for them to stay in place very long because they're you know it's it they're used to um having their own way all the time or or coming and going to stimulations in the city or having their drugs or whatever. So who is it that wants to take on the job of maintaining sanctuary in the world by simply being it and maintaining it? And if it's a, it doesn't have to be a physical place slash legacy because the legacy is carried on in practitioners clearly, but also, you know, someday there will be people who are, who know, like, I, I have no doubt that I'm in the right place at the right time. And if on any day I wake up and I decide, okay, I'm done with this, I could put it down and walk away. Not, but I would not be walking away from my legacy of the work, my legacy of practice, my legacy of holding and maintaining sanctuary. For others and of course it's not everyone's job to stay in one place but it's a rare opportunity you know to show restraint in sadhana is much harder than to be flamboyant showing restraint not gathering huge crowds not having websites not having big you know advertisements that you know that's a that restraint is something that, um, you know, I hope my, my students will get contaminated a little bit with the, the delight and the value and the wisdom in some restraint. So that if they become really free and liberated and amazing, they don't fall into the trap of trying to have an audience for it, but just be it. And that is sanctuary. So there's many aspects of that sanctuary that I find priceless.
Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for listening to In Conversation, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Find us at banyan.com for live events, books, and more.